you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Our text today is verse 10 through 12 in a message entitled, An Example of Faithfulness. Today we recognize Brother David Gardner for 50 years of faithfulness as a deacon. And as you heard, uh, he has served here for the past 30 at Cross Lanes Baptist Church. He's moving to a designation of Deacon Emeritus which is a special designation that we have for men who have served for a long time and who have served faithfully. Uh, this time we have one other deacon who is a deacon emeritus, and that's Mr. Jim Pettit. And I'm so thankful to God for the men who serve in our deacon ministry, and I say that from the bottom of my heart. There is no way that I would still be standing here today as your pastor had it not been for the faithful prayers and encouragement of these men and others who have served in that capacity through the years. And you are blessed as a church to have men who are spiritually minded, uh, who are focused on prayer, uh, who care about you as the family of God, and who are there in times of need and in times of loss and in times of burdens. And uh, I encourage you as a church to pray for them because it's not always easy and uh, we thank God for the opportunity, though, that we have to serve you in the capacity of your pastors and your deacons, and uh, we're blessed to be able to do that. Every five years, the International Mission Board uh, brings Missionary Emeriti together for a celebration of their service. Uh, their emeritus uh, status is based on their age and their years of service, a combination of that. And last year, uh, when they gathered, the people who were there represented people who could speak 40 different languages among them, along with a number of dialects. Uh, in their service to the Lord, uh, many had endured persecution, uh, war zones, tribal conflict, loss of personal property because they had to leave places quickly. Some had experienced homes being burned. Uh, more than one had been imprisoned. And grave markers overseas named friends and family, even children who died while their families were serving for the sake of the gospel. And in the gathering of 800 missionaries and nearly 1,000 people total, they told countless stories about people coming to faith in Christ and the gospel reaching into the darkest places. And they represented more than 1,750 years of collective service reaching the nations. When we think about what faithfulness is, faithfulness can be defined as a lasting loyalty and trustworthiness in your word. What you have pledged yourself to, what your commitments are, and then how you live those out. As followers of Jesus, when we embrace the good news and we are changed by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are called to faithfulness called to faithfulness in our commitment to God, in our families, among our neighbors, in our vocations, uh, in the church, and then ultimately in the world. I've been asked on occasion what my definition of success is. My definition of success is faithfulness to who God has called you to be and what God has called you to do. Success in God's eyes, may not measure up to what the world thinks is successful. But every single one of us can be faithful and successful in God's eyes. 
Faithfulness won't get you many accolades from the world, but I promise you it's going to be rewarded by God, which is far more important. In the last verses that we considered, Paul warned of perilous times that would come. He said there's going to be some difficult times that are going to come. He focused on the specific situation in Ephesus among the people who displayed some of the negative characteristics that we looked at, as well as the false teachers who plagued the church. In contrast to this, he spoke again of his relationship with Timothy. Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Paul's life had been an example to him to follow, an example that we can learn from as well. Timothy had followed Paul in the past, but he needed to continue to follow Paul in the future as he followed Christ. We, if we are in Christ, have followed him in the past, but it's just as important that we continue on now faithfully in the present and in the future. Unlike the false teachers, Paul's way of life was consistent with his teaching. And I think that the best kind of Christianity is not only taught, it is also caught as we see people live out their faith. So I begin reading now in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, and this is what the Word of God says. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want to show you three ways to follow the example of faithfulness. And the first one is this. Follow the example of faithfulness in teaching. In teaching. Verse 10 says, but you have followed my teaching. What does it mean to teach? It means to instruct. It means to explain something so that people can understand it. Uh, A premium is placed on sound doctrine in the Bible and in the ministry, in the teaching of Paul. The term is translated actually as doctrine back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It means both content and method. So think about it this way. It is what I teach, which is the content. It's how I teach, which is the method. And teaching is rooted in the revelation of God. We have something to say because God is the self-disclosing God. He has shown himself, revealed himself, communicated himself to people who could not know him otherwise. And the Bible is the record of that revelation. The psalmist prayed this in Psalm 119 and verse 12. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Three times in one verse, the psalmist cries out to God and asks him to teach him. Teaching is important. It's at the heart of the Great Commission. Now, not everybody has a formal teaching role. They're not teaching in a formal class or preaching in a preaching setting like this or in some other place that we have opportunity to teach in that way as the teacher. But everyone 
is drawn into the teaching process as a part of the Great Commission. You're teaching your family. You're teaching other people that you're trying to reach with the gospel and then help them follow Christ. We have this opportunity to teach disciples all that Jesus has commanded. And in his missionary work, this was the pattern that Paul exercised. He was interested in lost people being saved and saved people being discipled. And in the church today, we should be interested in lost people being saved, saved people being discipled. Paul would often spend a a considerable amount of time in certain places where he was able to do that and teach and disciple people. He would at times go back to places where he had worked to plant churches and to strengthen and encourage the disciples there. We have the record of letters that he wrote back to both individuals and to churches. And his goal in all of that was to teach and to make disciples. Now, the researcher uh, George Barna noted recently that the United States is in the midst of what he refers to as a worldview crisis. Now, a worldview is basically the eyeglasses that you use to look at the world around you. It's how you understand ultimate things about how the world came into being and what went wrong and what the solution to that is and what our place is in it and what the ultimate outcome is going to be. All these things are wrapped up in a worldview. But Barnes says that the problem in America today is that people are picking and choosing in a syncretism that puts together different aspects of worldview to fit whatever it is that they want to do. And he says one of the problems with that, uh, beyond it being unbiblical, is that even these ideas within the worldview that people construct Often these ideas contradict one another. And Barna says that we tend to be a superficial nation more interested in doing than in thinking. And I think part of the problem with that is that many evangelical churches in America have ceased to teach the Bible as often or as deeply as perhaps they once did. A biblical worldview, by definition, is based on God's revealed truth in the Bible And it directs our lives now and forever. God, creation, humanity, sin, salvation, purpose, and destiny, all of these things are a part of a biblical worldview. Teaching must be from the authority of the Bible. The Bible is authoritative, and because the Bible is authoritative, it is our rule for faith and practice. And the Bible takes precedence over our own traditions or our opinions, or any preferences that we might have. And there's a common pattern that is sometimes communicated for Bible study and teaching to help you think through how to approach the Scripture when you're reading it and studying it. And the pattern goes something like this. Is there a command to obey? Then if there is, you ought to obey it. Do it, because God said to do it. Is there an example to follow? If there's an example to follow, you ought to follow it. Ultimately, the example is Jesus, but there are other examples that are representative of him and representative of truth. Is there a promise to claim? If there's a promise to claim, you ought to claim it because there's never been a promise that God has given that he's not come through on. There's never been a promise that God has made 
that he won't bring about eventually in his timing. Is there a sin to avoid? If there's a sin to avoid, we need to avoid it. If we didn't avoid it, we need to repent of it. And when we read the scripture, these things are shown to us by the Spirit of God. And then is there a principle to follow? If there's a principle to follow, we ought to follow it. Now, one thing we know is that not every specific situation is addressed in the Bible according to the details of that situation. But there is a principle in the Bible that addresses every specific situation that you might face in life. And it will help you as that framework of your biblical worldview comes together to know what to do and how to live because God's shown you in his word. Teaching the Bible asks the question, what does the word of God say? Because it can't say what it never said. I believe that teaching should be clear. How we study and interpret the Bible matters. And it ought to be clearly communicated for our understanding. There's an old saying that goes, if there is a mist from the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pews. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of theological fog in churches today. And a church ought to have a robust theological and doctrinal teaching and ought to be consistent about that. Teaching truth is not about impressing people. It's about helping people believe and understand. So when we teach the Bible, we ask the question, what does it say? Because it can't say what it never said. But then we ask the question, what does it mean? Because it can't mean what it never meant. Teaching should be compelling. Teaching the Bible is not a running commentary. It is a compelling communication of the truth from God to us. We are here together listening to a teaching about the Word of God because we believe that God speaks to us through His Word. It's through His Word that we are convicted of our sins and then we are converted. It's through His Word that we are corrected when our course needs correction in life. It's through His Word that we are compelled to actually do what God says to do because He shows us the way and He gives us the light that we need to be able to walk path of righteousness. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, he said, and we have the prophetic word made more firm to which you do well to give heed as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God nourishes us through the milk and the meat of the word so that we would be more like Jesus and he equips us to live for him. To teach the Bible, we ask, what does it say? Because it can't say what it never said. What does it mean? Because it can't mean what it never meant. And then we ask the what now question. How does this apply to my life so that I can follow the example of faithfulness in teaching? And then second, you're to follow the example of faithfulness in living. Look again at verse 10. But you have followed my conduct purpose, faith, patience, love. Conduct uh, might be translated in your version of the Bible as manner of living. It, it, it literally means a way of life. This is the only time that the word appears like this in the entire New Testament. It is your way of life and particularly uh, your daily living. This is the practical side of the Christian life. 
I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his, in his work, The Life of Peace. He said, the gospel is not something we add to our lives. It is rather something which should entirely dominate them. The Christian life, therefore, is not merely a modification of the natural life. It is a new life, and Christians do not merely add something to their lives. They are people who have been changed at the center. They are entirely different. So I want to break down this idea of uh, somehow the sacred and the secular being separated. I want you to move beyond your thinking being that somehow you can compartmentalize your life. Where your spiritual life is what happens when you're in your devotion or when we're gathering together for worship or there's some other outward expression of your life with God. It is that, but then it is much more. It's everything that you do. It's how you live when you show up for work. It's how you treat your family. It's how you live among your neighbors. It's how you live in the world. And that changes everything when you begin to understand that your conduct in every facet of your life matters to God. And when we are saved, God begins to change us and grow us in holiness And then we can find the purpose that we're to live our lives for. When he speaks here of the purpose that we are to live according to our conduct by, that's really what you're living for. It's been commonly stated in recent years as as what's your why. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you in this world? What do you really care about? What's important to you? And the word comes from a verb that means to plan in advance what your main concern or your main intention is in life. Now, admittedly, when we look around us in the world and we see other people prospering that don't seem to be following Christ, in the backs of our minds, at least, we begin to think, well, how could that be? Or as the psalmist more plainly states it, why do the wicked prosper? And we begin to ask questions like that. And the enemy wants to confuse us and to make us think that our purpose in Christ is not really the ultimate purpose and that all the stuff that the world is offering us is really better. In Psalm 73, Asaph uh, addressed this very issue. He referred to how he was tempted to envy wicked people who seemed to have no cares and all of the fortunes of the world. But then Asaph did one thing important. He reflected on their ultimate end. He reflected on the outcome of these lives that appeared to prosper in the moment, but he knew they actually weren't going to prosper in the end. And here was his conclusion in Psalm 73 and verse 25. Whom have high in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire besides you. For Asaph, what mattered most was his relationship with God. If you do not have a relationship with God, then life has no ultimate purpose. It has only a a momentary purpose that's going to be fleeting and is not going to have any eternal impact. Your purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Are you living with that sort of purpose? Faith here is trusting God to do what only God can do. Faith includes both the content of what you believe And then how you trust in God as well. The existence of faith is demonstrated by how you live. We currently are walking by faith and not by sight. 
And we can believe the promises of God even when we cannot fully see the outcome, even when we don't fully understand the process. We can still believe and have faith in Him. So I ask you today, what do you need to believe God for? What kind of difficulty are you currently facing that you need God's intervention for? Is it difficulty with a child or a grandchild that's gone wayward? Is it trouble that's brewing in your family that maybe nobody else knows anything about? Is it some type of health crisis that's weighing heavily in your heart and in your life? Whatever the situation is, we could go on and on. We need faith so that we can hope for what God has promised and be certain of what we do not see. Patience here is to be long before passion or anger. It means to remain under even in difficult circumstances. The Spirit of God also grants this to us. And the opposite of patience is being easily agitated. Patience is most important as we look to Jesus and we await his return. It gives us the ability to bear up under the trials and the troubles that we face. What area of your life is God currently growing you in patience? Or perhaps what area of your life does God need to grow you in patience? Where you're not waiting on him and depending on him. And then love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of others. God has shown his love toward us preeminently in Jesus, and we in turn love him and we love other people. Are you following the great commandment in loving God and loving others? Followers of Jesus are set apart. We're different. We're distinct. That love is part of what makes us distinct from the world. And if you live a life that is distinct from the world, you won't gain, likely, the approval of the world, but there is a far greater reward that is awaiting you. Follow the example of faithfulness in living. And then third, follow the example of faithfulness in endurance. He uses the word endurance here. It's also translated as perseverance. The Bible has a lot to say about perseverance and endurance. You know why the Bible has a lot to say about perseverance and endurance? Because we desperately need it. That's why the Bible has a lot to say about it. It is a core issue of our faith. And it means to not swerve or turn away from your deliberate purpose. To be loyal to your faith, even in the greatest trials and sufferings. So here's Paul. He's exhorting Timothy to embrace suffering. He's saying, listen, you need to bear up under the difficulty of the suffering for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes we can be tempted to turn away from the plain meaning of Scripture, the clear truth, the compelling truth, because we don't want conflict. We don't want to offend anybody. We might shy away from sharing the gospel because we're afraid of how somebody's going to respond to us. Well, here's Paul telling us this stuff, and he's in prison. He is facing death, but he's enduring. And back in 2 Timothy 2, he cites a hymn from the early church, which makes the point that faithfulness now results in future glory with Jesus Christ because God is trustworthy. He said, if you want to endure hardship, you need to remember Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. You need to remember that the Son of God was willing to leave heaven and come to earth. That he was willing to enter into the, the mess of a fallen creation. 
that he was willing to be tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin, that he was willing to go to the cross and to give his life to endure the very wrath of God that we deserved, and he gave up his life for us. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day he rose from the dead. And Paul tells us, if you want to endure and persevere, then you remember Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. His word is powerful. God's sovereign purpose in saving the lost and reconciling to them to himself will succeed. And every promise of God is trustworthy. Now, we need this perseverance and endurance to do God's will. Hebrews 10 and verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. We need endurance to bear spiritual fruit. Luke 8 and verse 15 says, But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. We need endurance to run the race that is set before us. That's what Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says. We need endurance to grow in spiritual maturity. James 1 and verse 4 says, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect. That word perfect means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So maybe the message for some of you here today is don't quit. You're tired. Don't quit. You're discouraged, don't quit. You have things coming against you, attacks coming against you spiritually, don't quit. Because God will give you the endurance that you need to press on. And you can endure and your life can be an example to somebody else. Don't quit on those things that are of fundamental and most importance in your life, including your relationship with the Lord, your commitment to your family. The things that ultimately matter, quitting should not be seen as an option. I love the story of uh, a lady by the name of Florence Chadwick. I think I've shared this story in the past, but it's so good I'm going to share it again by way of illustration. She was an American long-distance swimmer uh, that was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1970. Her two most famous accomplishments include swimming the English Channel and the 21 miles from Catalina Island to Los Angeles, California. Chadwick failed in her first attempt to swim the Catalina Channel and she was pulled from the water just a mile from the shore. She evaluated her experiences of swimming the two channels. In doing so, she recalled a moment in the English Channel that she felt like she couldn't swim any further. But her father, trailing in a boat, spotted land And when he spotted land, that furnished enough inspiration to help her finish. But in her unsuccessful bid to swim to the California coast the first time, fog had obscured her view of the land. They told her as they were trailing her that she was only a mile away from the land, but she didn't believe it, and she quit. Two months after analyzing the facts, she became the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel. What she lacked in her first attempt was not ability. What she lacked in her first attempt was vision and endurance. She needed to be able to see, to trust what she was being told, that she could make it to the finish line. 
And she needed endurance and perseverance not to quit in that moment. For some of us, what we need today is we need to trust what we've been told in the Word of God. We need to have a clear vision of what is coming for us because God has promised it. Even if we cannot clearly see it, even if we cannot know when it's going to be, we know that God can be trusted, and as a result of that, we need to endure and we need to press on. Because there's going to be a time when we're going to cross that golden shore, and we're going to be in the presence of God in heaven forever. And we know that this promise is true because God has told us in his word when we have faith in Jesus. He's given us everything that we need to endure. Now there's another term that has uh, kind of gotten a little bit more popular in, in the last couple of years. And that is quiet quitting. Now listen, there have been a lot of folks that have been quiet quitting for a long time before the term ever came up. But it's a common term now that you hear in the workplace. Quiet quitting basically means you're doing the bare minimum to get by. It's just like you're just getting by just enough to not get fired. And, and you're, just, you're just getting through. That, that's the point. And that's not being a good steward of what's being entru- been entrusted to you. And I would like to say that spiritually this is not a problem. But there are a lot of people that seem to quietly quit in their endurance and the faith, and they're not pressing on for the Lord. They're not being useful as they could be. They might be present, just like people go to those jobs and quiet quit, but they're not really engaging. They're not serving. They're not giving of themselves for the Lord's work. People who refuse to quit and who endure over the long haul, hear me clearly, are driven by their commitments and not by their emotions. They're driven by what they have committed themselves to rather than what they feel like. Doesn't ultimately matter how you feel. We all go through ups and downs and ebbs and flows and difficulties. What matters is the commitments that we have made and more importantly, the commitment that God has made to us. Listen to what Revelation 2 and verse 7 says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Follow the example of faithfulness in endurance. And then I say this to you as I come toward a close. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He addresses this in verse 11 and 12. Now, you might think that people who follow biblical teaching and conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel would be loved and accepted by others, but that's not the case. At Antioch, Paul was kicked out of the city for preaching the gospel. At Iconium, Paul was almost executed by stoning. At Lystra, they stoned Paul and they left him for dead. And now he's sitting in prison awaiting execution. And what's he remembering? He's remembering how the Lord has delivered him. Paul's at peace. Why is he at peace? Because of his circumstances? No, he's at peace because he knows that he is in the hands of a good God. And at some level, everyone who follows Jesus as a way of life will suffer persecution. There's an organization called Open Doors, and Open Doors USA in particular, but every year, uh, or periodically at least, they put out a watch list that brings attention to religious persecution around the world. 
And they say that the number of Christians who have been killed for their faith has risen, listen to this, by 80% in just the last five years. And there's a couple of examples of that. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, according to a recent report, over the course of 10 days, the Allied Democratic Forces, ironically named as such, an Islamic terror group connected to ISIS, slaughtered over 80 Christians. And they vowed to kill more Christians to, I quote, please Allah. In a statement, the vicar of the parish where dozens of Christians have been killed said April turned out to be a month of bloodshed, which is ironic, uh, seeing that it's the expectation of having peace after celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The people were devastated. What about Nigeria? There's been a genocide of Christians in Nigeria. It's been characterized as such by a number of international observers to have reached new levels. According to one report, it it said that since 2009, more than 52,000 people who identify themselves as Christians in Nigeria have been killed. And I'm talking brutally killed for who they are and for the faith that they hold to. So this question came to mind. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Christians around the world are willing to pay the ultimate price for their faith. Meanwhile, in our country, many people can't even be counted on to be inconvenienced to serve in some of the most basic things of the faith. Many people aren't willing even to give a little bit of time in service to the Lord. My question is this, how could that be? Is it because our our vision is of something different than what the Bible's vision is? I mean, how, how can we not understand what God has done for us and not submit ourselves to him and say, Lord, however you want to use me, I'm in, I'm willing, I am here to love and serve you with my entire life. Listen, God's not asking for your leftovers. He's asking for a surrender of the entirety of your life to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This is the way. And more and more as the culture is shifting away from anything that even remotely recognizes or honors anything to do with Christianity, it's going to be a call for us in our lives to be willing to stand up and say, we will be faithful to the end. We're going to be faithful. No matter what anybody else does, we're going to be faithful. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of disciples we want to make. And if that's not convenient, and it's not, so be it. This life God has called us to is far better than anything you're going to exchange it for that the world has to offer. You'll never regret following Jesus faithfully. You'll never regret it. You'll have a lot of regrets in your life. You'll look back and you'll see things that you wish you'd have done differently. But if you follow Jesus with your life, you will never regret it. Eternally. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know what your need is today spiritually, but God does. If it's a need for salvation... 
I'm inviting you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If it's a need for greater faithfulness in your life, empowered by God, today would be a good start. Just say, Lord, I may not understand fully what that looks like or what that means or what all it's going to involve. But I'm here to say yes to your call on my life. I don't want to do this half-heartedly anymore. I want to be fully committed, fully surrendered as a follower of Jesus. Would you make that your prayer also for our church? We want to speak with clarity about what it means to be a disciple. We want to help you find and follow Jesus by faith. God, we love you as we come to this time of close, work in our hearts and lives, and we give you the glory for any good that comes from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.